This is 1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Hear God's Word. Oh, and also, too, uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, um, if you're here, you're newer, newer to Christianity, newer to faith, exploring faith, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, uh, please feel free to take that Bible that's in the pew with you as a gift from us. We'd love for everyone to have a copy of the Scriptures. We believe this is the primary way that God speaks uh, to us. So if you don't have a Bible, please take one of those home with you. And now hear God's Word from 1 Kings chapter 20. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria, that was the capital of Israel, and he fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to them, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, As you say, my lord, king, I am yours and all I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus is Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me all your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and your houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. And the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not consent or do not listen or consent. And so he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall not suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. In other words, he's going to reduce it to rubble. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him on his armor, boast himself as he who takes it off. And when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. This is the word of the Lord. Let's now pray and ask that God would give us insight into this text. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have spoken to us in your word, that you have inspired this passage of scripture for us. And we pray now that you would help us to know what you would have us to do in light of it. Help us to respond. Um, Give us the wisdom of your spirit to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Battles reveal. Last weekend, one of my favorite directors uh, released a new film, Christopher Nolan. Dunkirk was the number one film at the box office last weekend, and I know is, is probably going to be near the top again this weekend. Uh, and I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but from the moment I saw the first scenes of the trailer, uh, I knew it was going to be a must-see for me. There's just something about battle stories that draw us in as people. Uh, Whether the battles are real or imagined, stories of World War II, the Civil War, Game of Thrones, Star Wars, there's something about a battle that, that for all of its brutality and suffering and loss, that grabs a hold of our attention and won't let go. 
And I think this is at least in part because battles reveal. Battles have a way of revealing who we are, what we're willing to fight for, who we're willing to die for. It tells us so much about who we are as people, about who we are as a culture. Battles have a way of revealing who people really are. Courageous or cowardly. Sacrificial or selfish. Honorable or horrible. And of course, no human being fits neatly or completely into any one of those categories, right? Every one of us has moments of both courage and cowardice. And I think that's what makes these stories of battles so compelling to us. They cause us to think, to ask, what would I do in that situation? How would I respond? One of my favorite authors and philosophers, James K. Smith, recently reflected on this on Twitter. He wrote, I have no interest in the cult of war, but films like Dunkirk and Saving Private Ryan occasion profound doubts about my own lack of courage. It's the ubiquitous ordinariness of these soldiers that gets me every time. Carpet salesmen and pipe fitters who answer a horrific call, would I? Is there courage and fortitude and sacrifice deep down in this leisured and coddled soul? Could my comrades count on me? See, battles, they have a way of, of doing this. The stories make us ask these kinds of questions of ourselves. And in these two battle stories that we're going to see this morning in this text, they reveal something about God, Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. They reveal something about Ahab, the king of Israel, the king of God's people. And by the end, I think they, we will also see that they reveal something about us as well. And so this morning, the first thing we're going to do is to tell the story of these two battles from 1 Kings chapter 20. And then after that, we're going to spend a few minutes at the end looking at what those battles reveal about God, what they reveal about Ahab, and what they reveal about us. And so as we move through these stories, look for clues about what the battle is revealing about these characters. What are they fighting for? Who are they fighting for? What do they love? Look at that throughout the story. Pay attention to those details. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 20, we're introduced to this first battle. And in verse 1, the author introduces us to all of the key characters of the story. Verse 1, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered his army together along with these 32 other kings. And he goes up against Samaria. He closes in on it. Samaria is the capital of Israel. Ben-Hadad sends messengers into the city to Ahab, the king of Israel. So we have Ben-Hadad, the king of Israel's neighbor and rival to the north, Syria. We have Ahab, the king of Israel and his capital city of Samaria. But there's one character who is conspicuously missing in this introduction, who's been with us throughout many of these stories we've looked at this summer, and that's Elijah. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you're probably wondering, well, where did Elijah go? Why is he not mentioned in this introduction and these key characters? And maybe if you're new, if this is your first Sunday, you might have just no idea what's going on at all this morning. And so let me try to catch you up if you are newer. Uh, we've been in this series called With Us this summer. 
And in it, we're looking at a really dark chapter in Israel's history, the history of God's people, when it seemed that everyone was turning away from God, especially the kings and the leaders who were supposed to be modeling what it was to be faithful to God. And yet we have seen time and again throughout these stories that God has not given up on His people, that He continues to be with them, and that He is with us. God even raised up a new kind of leader, a prophet, who spoke against the leaders of Israel, calling them back to God. And one of these prophets' name was Elijah, and we've been following Elijah's story closely. He repeatedly confronted King Ahab and, and wicked Queen Jezebel. And God used him to send a drought onto the land for three years. This was a direct confrontation with the storm god Baal, a false god who people believe controlled the rains. And the drought shows that Yahweh, the one true God, our God, is the one who really controls everything. And yet, even after a dramatic display of power and mercy on the top of Mount Carmel, where the rains are restored to the land, Ahab and Jezebel do not turn back to God. They continue to worship Baal. Elijah despairs. He wants to die. But God won't kill him. Far from it, God still has much for Elijah to do. But what we learned last week is that God's voice is much quieter than we expect. And His ways, what He's doing, His work and His plans often take much longer than we expect. And the author of this story is showing us this in a vivid way by taking us into the story of these two battles that they almost seem out of place in the narrative. It it doesn't include Elijah. It doesn't seem to move that story forward in any significant way. But God is always at work in the ordinary, in crisis, and even in battles. And battles reveal And this battle comes at a critical time in the ancient Near East. Syria is seeking to increase its its power and its regional influence. They're worried about the neighbors that are warring in the area, and they want to take hold of crucial trade routes that pass through Israel. And the battle that Ben-Hadad begins, the Syrian king with Israel, he surrounds the city of Samaria, and he sends a messenger to Ahab and says, your silver and your gold... Your best wives and children are also mine. Now, this is where we expect that the battle would begin. We expect that Ahab would say, never. We will fight and never give up to defend our people and our city. I mean, that's what kings do. That's what the kings of Israel did, were supposed to do. That's what David did. This is a David and Goliath kind of moment. But then we read Ahab's response in verse 4. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. It's as if this bully comes up to Ahab and says, You know what? Meet me at the bike racks tomorrow. And I'm going to punch you in the face, take your milk money, go through your locker, and then date your sister. And Ahab responds by saying, Well, that sounds great. Well, go ahead and punch me in the jaw to avoid hurting your hand. Uh, Take my lunch money now, and and here's my locker combination, and and here's my sister's phone number. (laughs) Now, that's strange enough. But what happens next is even more odd. Because not only does Ahab agree to all of this, which just seems counterintuitive. Why is he agreeing to these 
these threats from Ben-Hadad. But then when Ben-Hadad sends messengers back to him saying, I'm going to do exactly what I said I'm going to do. Tomorrow about this time, I'm going to come and search through all your stuff and take it. Then all of a sudden, Ahab freaks out and he calls his war cabinet together. So what's going on here? Why this back and forth? Well, to understand, we need to know two things. First is a pretty simple one, and that is that that Ahab is a terrible leader who is only interested in self-preservation and self-promotion. So if this seems convoluted and like there isn't a central plan or goal shaping Ahab's response here, you're right. That's, That's exactly what's happening, and the author of this text wants us to feel that, to feel that confusion. Second, we also have to understand a little bit about ancient Near Eastern politics as well. Because what Ben-Hadad is trying to do is to make Israel join his team, to become an ally of his by force. He's essentially saying, we have you surrounded, Ahab, and I can take anything I want from you. But if your forces join with me and serve me, I won't destroy you. You can kind of keep all your stuff but ultimately it belongs to me, and I can have it whenever I want. And Ahab, in spite of what he's called to do as the king of Israel who's supposed to defend God's people, basically says, okay, sure, whatever, Syria, Ahab, you could, or Benadad, you can have all my stuff. I'll, I'll kind of capitulate to your desires, your whims. That was the politically expedient thing to do. And you may remember that Ahab married Jezebel for political purposes. And this is the same sort of move. He does the savvy thing rather than the right thing, the crafty thing rather than the costly thing. But then Ben-Hadad basically comes back and says, Ahab, you sucker. Tomorrow I'm actually going to come and take all your stuff and I'm going to make it mine. You're such a pushover, Ahab. I can't believe this. And now, in that moment, now Ahab's ready to fight. He wasn't willing to fight for God's people or reputation, but now that his stuff is at risk, he rallies the troops. He sends a message back to Ben-Hadad saying, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. In other words, it's kind of a turn of phrase meaning, don't count your chickens before they're hatched, Ben-Hadad. And when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. So having just finished off a a keg of natty light, Ben-Hadad and his 32 kings, uh, liquid courage coursing through their veins, uh, immediately prepare to destroy Ahab and the city and its people. And at this point, Ahab really deserves to be destroyed. He's a terrible leader, only interested in self-preservation. He's constantly disobeying God. And so when we get to verse 13 in the narrative, and the prophet, a prophet of Yahweh, shows up to give Ahab a word from the Lord, the one true God, a word to Ahab from God, the one who is rejected and despised and abandoned God repeatedly, We expect that message from God to be, Ahab, this is it. You're done. You're finished. Judgment is coming in the form of Ben-Hadad. 
But then look at verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude, all these armies that are surrounding you? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Wait, what? This is is essentially the first time that a prophet of Yahweh has ever said anything positive to Ahab. God says, Ahab, today I am going to give you a spectacular military victory against all odds. But why? So, Ahab, that you will know that I am Yahweh. That you will know, Ahab, that I am the one true God. Now that little phrase, that you may know that I am the Lord, That takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus. All the way back to the story of how God delivered His people out of slavery in Egypt. See, at the beginning of all of the plagues that fell on Egypt, the Lord through Moses says to Pharaoh, hard-hearted, disobedient, God-rejecting Pharaoh, the exact same thing. By these mighty acts of mine, Pharaoh, you shall know that I am the Lord. And now this prophet repeats the very same words to Ahab, who has also become hard-hearted, disobedient, and God-rejecting. But here the mighty act is not an act of judgment, but a promise of deliverance. It's stunning. That's exactly what happens. Ahab and his troops go out against Ben-Hadad and his 32 kings and all of their forces and chariots and horses. And in many ways, the story is not unlike the story of when Israel first came into the promised land and defeated all these pagan rulers against all odds who were there before. And the author, is, he's tying this story to the Exodus story, the story of God's people being brought back into the land. God is at work. And just as in those stories, God's people, by God's power, for God's God's purposes are victorious. Verse 20, the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Assyria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and the chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. The first battle is over almost as quickly as it begins. And Israel is the unquestioned victor. But Ben-Hadad escapes. And God's work will not be complete until Ben-Hadad has been destroyed, until he has been killed. And so the prophet quickly warns Ahab that there is another battle coming. The Syrian forces, they're stunned by their defeat. Because from a mere human perspective, they should have won the battle easily. But in the ancient Near East, there was no such thing as a mere human perspective. There wasn't a sacred, secular divide like we have today. Every war was a divine war. The gods were involved in everything. There wasn't a religious part of life and a not religious part of life. It all was. And so they look at their defeat and they quickly conclude it's because we fought the battle in the wrong place. Listen to verse 23. 
And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. We just, we fought in the wrong place. They're, they're territorial gods, and ours are better here, and theirs are better there. We just got to get home field advantage. If we can just draw them into a battle on the right battlefield, then we'll be victorious over them. And so in the spring, Ben-Hadad and his forces go out against Israel again. Verse 27. And the people of Israel mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. It's not a great thing for your army to be compared to. It doesn't sound very mighty. Two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. Again, the author wants us to feel this this tiny Israelite force and the massive Syrian army. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but He is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Here again, the prophet comes to Ahab and speaks not judgment or rebuke, but a promise of victory. And again, there is a proclamation that this will all happen so that Ahab will know that Yahweh is the Lord, the one true God. And again, just as in the first battle, Israel is victorious, definitively so. Finally, Ben-Hadad, this, this ruler who has defied God, he's killed Israelites, he's, he's tortured and slaughtered people all throughout the entire region. This warlord can finally be brought to justice. But in a shocking turn, Ahab, he has them there ready. The, the, the moment of destruction has come, but he doesn't go through with it. Instead, Ahab calls him brother, calls him a friend, lets him live, doesn't finish the job. God has promised him victory over this oppressive regime, this evil nation, and just as that victory is about to be secured, Ahab decides to make a treaty. He sees a way, a political opportunity to advance his influence in the region. Now, the idea of Ahab needing to kill Ben-Hadad may strike us as harsh or even as as morally wrong, but we have to understand this, this unique moment in history. What we have to understand is that as the king of Israel, Ahab is expected to be the deliverer of justice, and God is uniquely using him in that role in this moment. Essentially, Ahab is the supreme court for the people of Israel, and he has, he's failed to uphold justice. More to the point, he's, he's established a covenant with an enemy that hates God and his desire to destroy God's people. Ahab clearly thinks very little of Yahweh. Instead of being faithful to God as a king of Israel, Ahab rejects him and befriends the enemy. It's almost as if Ahab will allow himself to be ruled by anyone but God. God has reversed the fortunes of Israel and of Ahab, and yet Ahab rejects and disobeys again. 
God has been at work through the nation of Israel, through this king, to keep this bully of a nation away. He's working to prevent this evil king from causing greater harm in the world. He's working to preserve justice by strengthening Israel, who's to be a blessing to all the nations. And all Ahab is concerned with is his own political career and wealth. So at the end of the story, Ahab is visited by yet another prophet. And this time, judgment does come. Verse 42. And the prophet said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man who I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Battles reveal. And what these battles reveal here is that there is a battle really happening underneath the battle. What these battles reveal is that while you cannot exhaust God's mercy, you can reject it. You cannot exhaust God's mercy, but you can reject it. We said at the beginning this battle would reveal something about God, about Ahab, and about us. And what the battle reveals about God is that you cannot exhaust his mercy. He's fighting for the hearts of his people, and he's even fighting for the heart of Ahab. And when you stop and look back over the whole book, the whole narrative of 1 Kings that we've been following along with, this is pretty unbelievable. All that Ahab has ever done in the story is turn against God. Reject him. Lead other people to reject him. He's led his people into idol worship, sexual abuse, approval of child sacrifice, perhaps even participated in it himself. You may remember, if you were with us at the beginning of this series, that our introduction to Ahab, way back in the beginning of the series, is that the author describes him as, as literally the worst king in Israel up until this point in history. The very first words that we read of Ahab in this story were back in 1 Kings chapter 16. He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And yet, God still fights for him. He still uses Ahab in these mighty moments of deliverance so that Ahab will not turn away again, so that Ahab will know that Yahweh is the Lord. You cannot exhaust God's mercy. And this is one of the massive themes in the book of First and Second Kings. I love how one commentator distills this so clearly. He says, the impression we get from First and Second Kings is not that God is a stingy disciplinarian with an anger problem. If anything, the God of First and Second Kings is irresponsibly indulgent towards his people. By the time Judah is sent into Babylonian exile in 2 Kings 25, we're not saying, my, what a harsh God. If we read attentively, we are saying, it is about time what took so long. The offense of 1 and 2 Kings is the offense of God's mercy. God is scandalously liberal with his mercy and his grace. And if there is mercy for Ahab, then there is mercy for you. There is mercy for me. And yet what the battle reveals about Ahab 
is that you can reject God's mercy. We can reject God's mercy. God pursued Ahab again and again and again. He longs to make himself known to Ahab. Ahab, the most evil of kings, but he won't have it. In the end, Ahab would rather have his own way. He would rather trust in what he sees and in the mechanisms that he knows. He would rather look to the short term, figure it out from a political standpoint. In other words, Ahab does what we're all trying to do in one way or another, and that is to be his own savior. This work of trying to be our own savior, it's at the heart of both religion and irreligion. They're both self-salvation projects. We can try to be our own savior by rejecting God and doing everything our own way, or we can try to be our own savior by being good enough, by keeping all the rules so that then God owes us a good life. But in both cases, we are fighting for ourselves. And that's a battle that we will lose every time. But here's the good news. This is the gospel, which is utterly different than either religion or irreligion. The good news is that God is fighting for you. This week I read a book to Lucy, our three-year-old from the library, called The Perfectly Messed Up Story. It's a really fun children's book, and one of the things I particularly love about it is the title, because that title could be put over every one of our lives. They're perfectly messed up stories, but God is in the midst of that messed up story, working to perfect it, fighting for you. Every one of our lives is a messed up story, and yet God stands ready to show mercy. But all too often, we hide in our shame or in our stubbornness, thinking that we can't accept God's mercy, or simply rejecting it altogether. And in either case, we do exactly what Ahab did, which is to make himself more important than God. When we say, God, well, God could never forgive me. He could never show me mercy. We diminish his love and his power. We essentially say that what I have done is greater than what God is capable of doing. Don't reject God's mercy. He's fighting for you. Every battle is an opportunity to flee to Him, to the One who is making Himself known to you through His justice and through His mercy. Because you see again and again and again what God says in the story is that he will make himself known. And he makes himself known in mercy and he makes himself known in justice. And these two themes of God's mercy and justice, their intention with one another all throughout the story of the Bible until you reach the cross. And on the cross where Jesus died, God gives us mercy and satisfied justice. Jesus receives the mercy, or rather the justice that you and I deserve so that we can receive mercy without limit. Do you want to see? Do you want to know that Yahweh is the Lord? Then look no further than the rugged cross and the empty tomb. For here is where the ultimate battle has been won. It is the saving act of all saving acts.
God is fighting for you. Come to the cross and find mercy without end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would show us those places in our lives where we are rejecting your mercy. Would we cling and run to the never-ending supply of it that you offer to us freely if we will simply receive it? We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory by the power of the Spirit. Amen.